This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to this podcast. My name is Professor Andrew Beckerman Rodeau, and I'm a full-time law professor at Suffolk University Law School. I'm also the co-director of the Intellectual Property Law Concentration and also the co-director of the Patent Law Specialization, which is part of the Intellectual Property Concentration. My background, if you're interested, is I'm formerly an engineer and I'm formerly a practicing patent attorney before I went into academia about two decades ago. And what I thought I would do is I would give a brief introduction to just IP law generally today, just give you kind of an overview and a grounding of what intellectual property law is, and then I'll talk a little about our concentration and specialization at Suffolk University, and then follow that with answering any questions that you may have either about IP law, patent law, or the Suffolk University program. When we talk about intellectual property, what are we actually talking about? Well, we're talking about products of the mind. Unlike tangible things like a car or a chair or clothing, people think up a variety of things that come from their mind. It could be a new invention. It could be an idea. It could be technical know-how. It could be artistic or creative endeavors. A new poem, a new song, music, a movie. It could be a brand name or a trademark for a business. All of those things come out of someone's mind, and all of those things are traditionally considered intellectual property. Intellectual property law is the bodies of law, and there's several of them, that as a group provide legal rights and protection for various types of intellectual property. Now clearly, not all intellectual property is protected by the law, and in fact, that's one of the difficult issues that courts have dealt with recently, and in the patent area, for example, the U.S. Supreme Court has dealt with this issue repeatedly over the last several years, and even this year, they recently heard a case that was argued on the question of what subject matter was and was not patentable under the U.S. patent law, and a decision is expected later in the year on that issue, and it's also expected that decision will not resolve the issue. Now, when we talk about intellectual property law to protect intellectual property, we're really talking about a composite of several bodies of law, and they're really made up by patent law, copyright law, trademark law, and trade secret law. And each one of those bodies of law has particular rules, regulations, and limits on what it does and does not protect. So let me talk about each one of those areas, at least in brief, individually. Let's start with patent law. That tends to be in the news a lot. It's an old area of law. And there's really, for all intents and purposes, two types of patents that really matter today in the U.S. Generally, when people talk about patent law, they're talking about utility patents. And utility patents basically cover inventions. And what do you mean by invention? Something that's functional, something that does something. It could be a machine that accomplishes a task. It could be a process for treating a disease. It could be a particular electronic device. Anything that has a functional purpose, it does something, is protectable under utility patent law. And in the U.S. now, I think we're closing in on about 8 million patents have been issued to date. The other type of patent, which is less common and less often talked about, and there are many fewer have been issued, but they're still nevertheless important in certain industries, and those are design patents. And design patents are somewhat the opposite of utility patents. 
Design patents protect the ornamental, non-functional appearance of a product. So the idea is if you're making a computer, you know, it could be an ordinary box like old PCs were. It could be a nice sleek design like Apple computers tend to exhibit. And so design patent law is designed to protect the aesthetic appearance of a functional product. Not the functional aspect, just the aesthetic appearance. You don't hear a lot about design patents, but some industries rely heavily on them. And in fact, Apple Computer in the last year has relied heavily on design patents to bring a number of lawsuits against companies that are making laptops and other products that look remarkably similar to Apple products. A couple of general things about patent law. One, a patent will give you exclusive rights for a limited period of time. One way to think about those rights is you're insulated from competition for the period of the patent and that gives you a market advantage. Now, why does the government do that? Well, they, the government does that because the idea is to benefit the public. So when you file for a patent, typically, after 18 months, that patent information is made public. And it's publicized over the internet, and it's publicized through the Patent Office website, basically, to the world. And so you're disclosing that information in return for being insulated from competition by getting the patent. And then when the patent expires after a limited period of time, it's roughly 20 years today, that technology becomes part of the public domain. Everyone is free to use it. So it's a classic bargain. The law is going to give you a certain economic advantage, and in return, you're going to share that innovation with the world. Patents also require certain requirements. One, a novelty requirement. That means the invention has to be new. So if your invention is not new, you're not entitled to a patent. The second more difficult requirement is even if it is new, it has to be qualitatively enough of an advance such that you're entitled to a patent. And that's called the non-obviousness requirement. And the logic is that, well, your invention might be new, but it might be so trivial that you're not entitled to a patent. The next type of intellectual property, which is in some ways the opposite of patent law, is trade secret law. And trade secret law, unlike patent law, which is federal, trade secret law is primarily state law. And it requires, as the name implies, secrecy. So if I have some type of technology, some type of process, or something I'm using in my business that gives me an economic advantage over competitors who do not have that information, I'll be entitled to legal protection for that information if I actually keep it secret. And sometimes companies must choose between relying on trade secret law or patent law because in many cases technology may be protectable under either. And they have to make a choice. Obviously if they choose patent law they have to disclose it to the world. And they have to share with their competitors what they're doing. Some companies prefer not to do that. On the other hand, if they keep it a secret, they don't have to share it with anyone and potentially that trade secret could last forever as long as it's maintained as a trade secret. The risk, of course, is if you rely on trade secret law, what if someone independently develops the same technology? Well, they're not an infringer and they're free to use it. What if someone inadvertently reveals the information to the public such that all secrecy is destroyed? Well, the trade secret property is now gone. Everyone is free to use it. Sometimes companies have to make that decision on what they're going to rely on. And typically it's going to depend on a lot of factors, which could include, well, how easy is it to keep this technology secret? How likely is it someone's going to independently develop it? 
Things like employee mobility become a problem. If you have a lot of high-level engineers that need access to the trade secret to work in your company, and if those engineers frequently change jobs or competitors may lure them away with higher salaries, that can be a real concern in terms of keeping the information secret. Typically, at least in the U.S., where trade secret law is fairly robust compared to many other parts of the world, the most common type of trade secret is most likely manufacturing processes. If I have a way to manufacture a generic product such that the product looks like any other product made by any other method, I may be able to keep that manufacturing process secret through elaborate precautions that I utilize. And of course, famous examples are the method of making Coca-Cola. That's been a trade secret allegedly now for over 100 years. So in that case, if they had filed for a patent, Long ago, 80 years ago, that would have been in the public domain and people could copy it. So trade secrets have certain risk entailed with them, but on the upside, the economic advantage may last for a much longer time for a patent, and you simply may not share with the public what you're doing, and so you have the advantage of lack of disclosure. Another main area of intellectual property law is copyright law. And copyright law is interesting in that, at least by way of background, it wasn't that busy or robust an area of law 20 years ago. But the advent of the internet and the distribution of digital data freely through various electronic communication mediums has thrust copyright into the forefront and it's become a major source of protection for many kinds of digitally created media. And what does copyright law typically protect? Well, it protects artistic works, writings, you know, poems, a novel, fiction, paintings, artwork, sculpture, movies, music, any kind of aesthetic or creative works are typically come under the domain of copyright. Copyright originally started out merely to protect writings, books, but it's radically expanded today to cover music and movies and many other things. Virtually almost any creative activity or aesthetic product that's created is protectable under copyright. And like patent law, the copyright owner can prohibit others from copying or publicly displaying or publicly performing the particular copyrighted work for the statutory period. I mentioned patent law typically lasts 20 years. Copyright has a variety of terms depending on certain circumstances, but the typical term is the author's life plus 70 years. So copyright terms last quite long, and there is some push to perhaps make them even longer in the future. Unlike patents, which are very time-consuming and very expensive to obtain protection for, a utility patent could take two, three, four, five years to obtain. It also could cost five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to obtain. They're very expensive and time-consuming to acquire. Copyright, by virtue, requires doing nothing. When you create a work that falls within the copyright statute and is entitled to protection, your protection arises automatically upon creation of the work. If you want to sue someone for infringing the work, you do have to register the work at some point. But the registration process is minimal cost and takes minimal amount of time and essentially amounts to filling out a form which is downloadable off the internet. And so it's not a terribly complicated thing to do. The last major area of intellectual property law, which is one people often don't think about but they rely on tremendously, and that's trademark law. And trademark law protects brand names or symbols, or words, or phrases that become through advertising associated with a product. And so essentially they're a shorthand to make a mental association with a product. And they're among, in many respects, the most valuable types of intellectual property. 
if you think about your daily life, you know, you're driving down the highway, you're hungry, you spot a giant golden M by the side of the road, you have an immediate association with McDonald's. Let's say you go into the supermarket and you're thirsty and you want orange juice. You're most likely to immediately look for either Tropicana or Minute Maid, both very, very well-known trademarks for products. Whether you're buying candy, whether you're buying a car, there's a tremendous amount of association. Think about it, when you think of a car, a Toyota, there are certain characteristics that come to mind. On the other hand, if you're buying a, if anyone remembers the Yugo, the famous car that came from Eastern Europe many years ago, that is a quite different mental association. And so trademarks are very valuable because they create a shorthand mental association which can often, you know, encourage the consumer to buy a product. Let me make a few other comments just about intellectual property generally. This is an old area of law. When uh, the U.S. Constitution was enacted, it allowed for the passage of patent and copyright law. And in fact, in 1790, the first patent and copyright law was enacted. And they've been in continuous versions of those since then. And likewise, trade secret law and trademark law are quite old. They both predate the founding of the U.S. But IP law, up until the last 10 years or so, has often been an obscure area of law that people didn't focus on that much. That's changed over the last decade for a number of reasons. One, the news media have paid a lot of attention to intellectual property law. And why have they done that? Well, largely because intellectual property has become a key economic value or driver in our society today. Many large companies in the U.S., you know, very large Fortune 500 companies, more of their assets in many cases are based in intellectual property than in physical assets. And that's a real change from the past. If you go back 50, 100 years, the assets most companies had, the majority of them, were physical assets. Today, many companies have a tremendous amount of intellectual property, and in fact, they have less in the way of physical assets. And so intellectual property has become a much more important and critical area of law for that reason. And the Supreme Court has also taken tremendous interest in IP law. The Supreme Court, you know, only has to hear cases they want to hear. They're not obligated to hear really very many cases. And they rarely ever dealt with IP cases. Decades go by before they would hear an IP case. Lately, in the last five or ten years, the Supreme Court has granted cert and heard multiple IP cases virtually every year. And I think that's also a reflection of the fact that the Supreme Court has realized the economic importance of intellectual property to our society. So there's been much more of a general interest in the area. I can also say, just as an anecdote, I've been teaching intellectual property in law schools for about 25 years. And when I first started 25 years ago, the classes would tend to be, you know, three or four or five people. They weren't sure what intellectual property is. Today, my class will be 50 or 60 people. And we teach the overview of intellectual property law course virtually every semester and in the summer, and it's full. So there's much more of an interest among society, among law students, and lawyers in general about this area of law. Let me spend a couple minutes talking about Suffolk University Law School. We're a very large law school, but we have a number of specialty programs in some areas. And one of the areas that we've specialized in over the last 15 years or so has been intellectual property. My co-director, Professor Mike Rustad, started intellectual property concentration here at Suffolk back in the 1990s. It was then called the High Technology Concentration. We've since renamed it Intellectual Property Concentration. And I was brought on in 2000 to somewhat beef up the patent side, since that's my area of expertise. 
And so we created a intellectual property specialization as part of the concentration in patent law. And typically, what does the concentration involve? Well, after your first year of law school, you can sign up for the concentration, and we have a robust offering of courses in all the various areas of IP law. Typically, a student takes initially a two-credit intellectual property survey course, which covers the basics of patents, copyrights, trademarks, and trade secret law. And then from there, depending on their interest, they can take tracks of classes based on any of those particular bodies of law. So if patent law is of interest to you, you can take a basic patent law course. Then there's a biotechnology patent law course. Then there's a skills course on drafting patent claims and on practicing before the patent office. There's a skills course on litigating patent disputes. If you're interested in copyright law, there's a basic copyright law course followed by an advanced copyright law course. And likewise, we have courses in trademark law, trade secret law, and numerous other areas of intellectual property law. One thing that we have added, and we're in the process of finalizing the hiring and setting it up, we'll be starting next fall, will be an intellectual property transactional clinic. We also have a really great, great clinical program at Suffolk. And one of the things we haven't had to date has been an IP clinic. So we're starting that in the fall, and that will allow anyone interested in IP law in their third year, they can sign up for the clinic, and it'll be focused on transactional work, so they can get experience dealing with clients, nonprofits, small inventors, et cetera, who have intellectual property issues, helping them you know, resolve and answer their questions, helping them do basic documentation and other kinds of transactional work in terms of getting hands-on experience. The thought is that this will help us produce intellectual property lawyers that not only have a theoretical knowledge of the area of law, but also have a practical knowledge. So the hope is to create attorneys that are more ready to hit the ground running and in terms of practice, more quickly going to be able to start practicing as intellectual property lawyers. Can you speak to the differences between a patent agent and a patent attorney? Let me back up just for a second. When we talk about patent attorneys and patent agents, if someone wants to get a patent, they need someone to represent them before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And the United States Patent and Trademark Office is very picky about who could represent inventors before them. And so they have an exam you have to take in order to represent people. And the exam is on patent law, but they have very strict requirements on who can take the exam. You have to have a science background. Typically, people that go into that field have backgrounds in biology, chemistry, or engineering, or physics, or related hard science background. If you take that exam and pass it, and you're not an attorney, you're designated a patent agent, and you can represent inventors before the Patent and Trademark Office on patent matters. If you're also an attorney, then you become titled as a patent attorney. So that's the only real difference. The majority of people that do patent work in the United States for inventors are patent attorneys. However, there are a certain percentage of people that do their work are just patent agents. Frequently, patent agents are employed by law firms, and often the law firms would prefer that they go to law school while they're working as a patent agent and become a patent attorney. So that's the key difference. You have to pass the same test, have the same science background, but a patent agent is just someone who doesn't also have a law degree in addition to that. The second question I see, you mentioned at the beginning of your talk about a case or decision. Can you expand on that? I believe I was talking about the Prometheus case, which was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, I think last month, roughly last month. 
And that deals with a very simple question, and that's the question of how do we draw the line between subject matter that should be even considered or eligible for patentability? It's typically a Section 101 issue or a statutory subject matter issue. And it's been an issue for decades exactly how you come up with a test for drawing the line. And the Prometheus case is probably going to answer the question, but my guess is it's probably not going to be satisfactory in terms of coming up with a good resolution. Not because the court can't do it or is dumb or anything, just because it's a very difficult question to quantify. And that's been always the difficulty. And it's created problems for lower courts because we recently had the chief judge of the Court of Appeals of the Federal Circuit here, and he was complaining that, you know, it's not that he's unhappy with the Supreme Court, it's they haven't given him a rule, clear-cut rule, and so it's very difficult to decide cases. I think they haven't come up with a good rule because it's very difficult to come up with a rule. And so that's going to be a continuing issue, I think, in patent law, exactly where they draw the line between patentable subject matter and things that are not considered to be patentable. Would you recommend sitting for the patent bar exam prior to beginning law school? I think that there's certainly some merit to that. I don't know that it's a problem if you take it before or during law school. If you're intending to be a patent lawyer, I would say that the most beneficial would be to have passed the patent bar before you graduate from law school. That used to be in the past when I practiced. People often practiced a few years and then took it. Increasingly, partners in law firms are telling me they really prefer people have it by the time they graduate. So I don't think it matters whether you do it while you're in law school or before you start law school. The key would be just to have it done before you graduate. I mean, obviously, one advantage of having it done before law school is it's one credential that's simply out of the way, and you don't have to worry about it. And it's one less thing a firm has to worry about in terms of whether you're going to pass that exam or not. The test is not unbelievably hard. But it's harder than the regular bar exam in most states. It usually takes a couple of months of intensive studying to pass, but most people usually pass it if they do that studying. What constitutes a science background? And do you need a degree or industry experience? Well, I assume you're talking about qualifying for taking the patent bar exam. And what typically qualifies is the patent office has a list of degrees that you have to have. The most common degrees that people in patent law probably have today are engineering degrees. Among engineering, the most sought after is electronic engineering. But patent lawyers have all types of engineering degrees. My engineering degree is a structural engineering degree. It could be a computer engineering degree. Computer science degrees can be problematic sometimes because they have to be accredited and many computer science programs are not. The other areas that are acceptable are biology, chemistry, physics, and there's a variety of other degrees. My suggestion, because I can't do it all from memory, if you go to my website, which is at lawprofessor.org, lawprofessor.org, you'll see a button which says patent bar exam. And if you click on that, I have links and materials from the patent office which list all the degrees that qualify. In addition to a science background, the other option that allows people to qualify are certain types of industry experience combined with certain coursework. So if you don't have a degree in the appropriate area, but you have enough coursework among a menu of listings that they have, that may qualify. I had a student a couple years ago who had a degree in broadcast engineering, which did not qualify, but he took an alternate route. If you pass the professional engineer's 
first part of the test, that qualifies. So he went and did that, he passed, and he's now working as a patent attorney in Boston. Industry experience, in addition to a science background, that's an interesting question because it really depends. Some firms really don't care that much if you have industry background. Other firms do care a lot. It really varies. There's quite a variety of interests in what firms are interested in. Are any classes offered in the IP concentration specifically targeted at preparation for the patent bar exam? The answer to that is a classic lawyer like yes and no. We do not offer classes specifically for in preparation of the patent bar exam. And one reason is because there are five or six very good review courses that already do that, and it makes no sense to recreate the wheel. We do endeavor, though, to have one of those courses, always in the summer, offers their course at Suffolk Law School. We negotiated a discount with them. We give them free space, and they give our students about $800, I think, off the course. So there may be another course at times. We'll be here in the summer. So we don't offer that. We do offer, though, something I think which is related, but probably better. We do offer a two-part year-long course to prepare you to be a patent lawyer. And one part of that course involves actual practice experience with a practitioner writing patent applications and learning how to draft patent claims, all the various skills you would do as a patent lawyer. And that's a year-long skills-based course. We also have other, we just are starting in the fall, a transactional course on drafting IP agreements. Those give you the skills to do what a lawyer does in drafting those agreements. Now, obviously, if you take those courses in writing claims and dealing with the patent office and the patent course, that will certainly give you a substantial amount of knowledge for the patent bar exam. But the reality is the patent bar exam tests a tremendous amount of nitpicky rules that are in the Manual of Patent Examining Procedure. And that's really the focus of the test. And frankly, you learn that to pass the test, and many of those rules you would never look at again once you start practicing. So we don't teach directly for that. How do we educate the community, including schools, about students of exceptional artistic ability and how to apply it to business patent solutions? Well, I'm not sure how we educate the community. That's to some extent, I guess, beyond the scope of what I was talking about. But we do have in our concentration, I'm only one of several professors that teach, and I'm an engineer and tend to be science-oriented. We do have several other people, at least three other people, who teach in the intellectual property concentration, and they're not science types, and their focus is not patent law. So, you know, that'd be the type of thing that would interest them more, because, you know, they deal more with the copyright, trademark, right, publicity, artistic side. We also have a course related to that, and that is entertainment law, because the entertainment law field deals tremendously with intellectual property law, but not with the science or patent side. Do you know how courts typically decide cases when celebrities trademark their own names, even if it's a common name or another business has the same name? Well, that actually raises a fascinating and very difficult question, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what a trademark is. So let's say I register a particular name as a trademark. The property interest is not in the name. The property interest is in the mental association created by using that name. So, for example, if I want to sell fast food, I probably can't use McDonald's because there's a mental association already associated with McDonald's. On the other hand, if my name is Sam McDonald and I'm going to open a paint store and it's going to be McDonald's Paints, I can most likely do that because 
I'm not interfering with that mental association. No one's going to think I'm selling hamburgers and I'm selling paint. And so if someone wants to trademark a name or almost any word, there has to be some mental association created with that name or word and some product or service being sold. Because it's that mental association which is actually the protected property interest, not the name itself. Do those in the Suffolk Intellectual Property Program get help or assistance with intellectual property career options after graduation? The answer is yes, and the assistance is in a number of ways. We have a very robust career development office who deals with helping students generally get positions. Anytime it's a position having to do with patent law, of course, they talk to them and they end up referring them to me. Because the IP concentration has been around for a while, and we've been very successful placing people, we have graduates doing intellectual property law work at virtually every law firm in the Boston area. And so part of my job as co-director of the concentration is, for lack of a better word, I schmooze alums and I build alumni development relationships. And we have a very loyal alumni base, and they do a tremendous amount in terms of helping students get jobs. Frequently, if there's a job opening at a firm, I will get an email from someone at that firm who's an alum saying, by the way, we have this opening, and before we post it, I want to send it to you. And that gives our students a great edge. In fact, at this point, there are firms in town where more than half the lawyers are suffered grads doing IP work. And we did a survey or a study this past year. My co-director did it. And we discovered that the majority of IP lawyers in Boston area law firms went to Suffolk. And not by a small amount, by a gigantic amount. There's no other school in the United States that has as many graduates practicing IP law as we do in the Suffolk area. And so keeping up those connections has been a tremendous ability for getting our students jobs. The other thing I'd mention is that in the patent area particularly, we've become the go-to school in the Boston area for a variety of reasons. And so we're the preferred school for people to hire patent attorneys from. We're often people's first choice. How does the Department of Commerce regulate the USPTO and how often are regulations and guidelines changed? Well, if you're talking in terms of regulations for getting admitted to practice, they don't change that often. Periodically they change, but they've been pretty static over the years. And again, you get that information off my webpage. In terms of how they deal with giving people patents, that changes a lot because the Supreme Court and the Federal Circuit have frequently changed the law over the last decade. And so the patent office has to obviously follow the law, so they frequently have changed their regulations to deal with that. Does the state you take the patent bar exam in matter? No, I'm not sure I fully understand that question, but the patent bar exam is a federal exam. So you just take it once, and it gives you the right to practice patent law, represent people with the patent office nationwide. In terms of being a patent attorney, as long as you're admitted to some state, you're designated a patent attorney. Let me end it here and encourage you, if you do have questions about the Suffolk program, certainly call the admissions office. If you want to go online, go to my website at lawprofessor.org. There are links on patent law. There are links to the intellectual property concentration. And also, you'll find my email at the website. Feel free to email me if you have any questions. If you're interested in the Suffolk program, I would encourage you to visit. If possible, make an appointment to talk to admissions, make an appointment to talk to me. And you're welcome to sit in on any classes that I teach and ask questions. So good luck with your endeavors, and thank you for your attention this afternoon.
This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.